0: Somewhere back at the dawn of history, man discovered roast duck. Man's next discovery, the stuffy stomach.
1: Welcome to Airwaves Full of Bacon, Chicago's oldest active food and restaurant podcast. Yet about eight months is the grizzled old man of a rapidly growing scene. Anyway, it's by me, Michael Gebbert, James Beard award-winning food writer and video maker for the Chicago Reader, Sirius Eats Chicago, Wear Chicago, and more. This is the Dead of Winter episode, and we'll start by making a warm, filling cassoulet with the Sunday Dinner Club, better known as the other half of Honey Butter Fried Chicken. Next, did you know one of Chicago's legendary sports names was a vegetarian who tried to have an entirely meat-shunning team? That's just one of the things I learned about our meaty city's veggie past from Adam Sprinson, author of The Vegetarian Crusade. And then we take a Mediterranean vacation with Gus Cushell of one of the busiest restaurants in Chicago, Greek Islands. That's all in this episode of Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Anthony Quinn and Zorba the Greek of podcasts. (laughs) just the name of it evokes hearty rustic food full of meaty flavors that warms you from the inside out chicago's sunday dinner club the underground dining club that honey butter fried chicken grew out of last year has held Cassoulet dinners since they started almost a decade ago by now it's one of the highlights of their year and making enough cassoulet for the nearly two dozen cassoulet dinners they'll hold is a major production. I joined them in the kitchen as the two-day process began one Monday morning. Sunday Dinner Club's chefs and owners, Josh Culp and Christine Sikowski, gather their staff around a work table covered with boxes of yellow onions, bags of carrots, bins of leeks, and one sealed carton labeled foie gras.
2: Alright, are you guys ready to meet?
0: Yeah, me Can you turn the music well, down Well, Oh, okay. So I think the first thing that probably needs to go on is the white beans. Yeah. Um. So those we're just going to rinse out of the brine and then put into um large pots. We're thinking like four, probably. As big as we can find. Huge, yeah. yeah. Well, we have stock pots in Yeah. yeah we have so. 60
2: pounds of and double <laughs> They're the size. They're all over there. <laughs>
0: Um and then we'll have to make one small pot without um pork. So we'll just use it because we're putting ham hocks and any bacon skin and all that kind of stuff in there. So we have a
2: person that well, eats but also for veg,
0: not. right? Well we're gonna make veg separate.
2: Veg separate beans. Yeah. Oh
0: okay. we have different beans. We're gonna okay. make a whole different So
2: we have a person bean. that eats meat but what doesn't eat pork.
0: We had a couple of those that I saw. Any others? Um there was one person who was like no um, beef or pork, but they already are getting the veg caps. They right. want the Okay. okay. Yeah. I saw like two others that were no pork. Let's just make a no sure. pork. We'll just do a small one. Yeah. Okay.
2: No, no duck person. No, I
0: didn't see any of that. No, no ducks? No. Yeah. We had one no
2: duck person one year because they um, grew John, up.
0: John,
2: what's his I don't name? Have to say his name. <laughs> He's in the
3: He's fine.
2: <laughs> he grew up with ducks. <laughs> So he did. he's a total meat eater, but he just won't eat duck, so we had to make him a special casserole without any duck fat or duck because it <laughs> reminded him of a little it. ducky. It's a good
0: so duck. in that white bean it's just going to be onions, garlic, leeks, carrots, and celery, and then a bouquet of um, parsley, thyme, and bay. Um, so we'll just stir those from the bottom a lot. And near the end of the white beans, we're going to put one kind of sausage just to meet it up a bit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. To what? <laughs> we're just going to meet it. We're going to meet it? Meet it up. Meet it up um, first, and then we'll take those out, or we'll just let everything cool together. Um, the bacon is just going to get kind of small-cued, or anything like that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, and just slightly roasted, just to render off of it. Um, we should
2: save all that fat. Yeah.
0: Good. So we're reserving the fat on that. And then duck. Like you want to. I am so excited. The so duck,
2: there's like three or four my or five yeah, hotel ready. cans of duck so need all the And the, the jelly. Yeah. Um, is going to be distributed separate. amongst the, um,
0: yeah, just keep it separate and we'll distribute it when we're done. On so. um, duck duty. Duck duty? Okay. Bueno. Um, yeah. Well,
2: I think we should have a group effort actually to get, to get those beans, beans on because we, we might have to do multiple batches.
0: Yeah.
3: yeah. The cassolets. um, We make two per night, so we'll make roughly, each one serves about 12 to 15 portions. A lot. (laughs) A lot! (laughs) 40 pans of cassoulet with 500 portions. Um, Right now I think we still have, I think we have about 385 confirmed guests as of today. Um, But we're making 500 portions so we can continue to add... Dates and not we, let people not deny like them that, the, the deliciousness. That, that. It's very important not to deny them the deliciousness.
2: Christine, how did we start? Why did we start doing cassoulet? Is there any good story for that? I wish there was a good story.
3: I think we were uh, looking through Alice Waters' menu cookbook inside okay. cassoulet and we're like, we should do cassoulet. Well, also, I had uh, lived in France for a little bit too and uh, was definitely had a lot of French sort of cooking influence. At that time, I had only been gone or back in the U.S. for like a year? No, less than that. So I had lived there for four months, come back, finished culinary school, and then we started dinner clubs. So French was still, that cuisine was still sort of in my brain. And also I had taken a job at Blackbird, which definitely had some influence there too. So I think that plus looking through the book and seeing the A menu was just like, this looks really challenging. And like, it's going to take us like a few days to make this. We should, it's special. We just decided to sort of give it a go.
2: I think too, uh, I think too that we have often look for those dishes like, you know, mole in Mexico or um, cassoulet in France that are the thing, you know, somehow have a good long story tradition to them. Um, cause, you know, that's definitely the kind of food we're... Well,
3: then looking to make it our own. Yeah,
2: and then looking to make it our own. But I think we're, we're always drawn to that kind of... We love pot de feu I don't speak French, but you know, just beef cooked slowly in broth with some vegetables. Um, and it's just very simple, but really... It requires some attention to detail and great ingredients, and not a lot of bells and whistles or tricks. Um, That's the kind of stuff I think we like to do, so Castellet fits. I guess we've been doing it since the very first year, and this is, we're going into our ninth year, so I think, you know, after sometime that first year we did Castellet. So, and I mean, the first time we did it, we did one, Um, and now we're doing, I don't even know. Becca, how many Castellet dinners are we doing? So, 17 or 18. Private dinner clubs are a whole different ballgame in terms of when people know each other at dinner club, it's usually a little even more exciting affair. You know, there's something about when you sit at a communal table at Sunday dinner club normally, there's a lot of connections and people know each other, but having a little bit of stranger around you, I think, gives people some shame. <laughs> when you're in a room of 24 people that you're, are your friends, that's when that's when wildness happens. But they're, they're fun. Only dancing on tables once or twice over the year. Uh, is that bacon? Yeah. yeah, that's great. If they're slightly bigger, I'm okay with that too. I would go any smaller than that, and I would go much bigger than that. The first course, every year, you know, our we have a good time coming up with the rest of the dishes for our Castle Dinner. And this year we're doing uh, a foie gras torsion, uh, with candied kumquats and uh, and pickled fennel um, on a brioche toast. So you have know, something light to get you started before you have cassoulet. Um, so we've got some awesome uh, foie gras here from La Belle Farm which is in upstate New York. Um, and We're going to actually try a recipe that is in based on Suzanne Goyne's, uh new cookbook from her AOC cookbook. She's just got a very simple foie gras Tureen that uh, treats the foie incredibly simply but we're going to add some uh, green peppercorns to it um, which we think will go nice with the kumquat and the fennel so so yeah I mean, one of the things we do when we come up with a dish we'll come up with a conception of the flavors we want we'll do research on things like we want to we look at a bunch of recipes for foie gras torsion and uh, kind of pick parts from all of them that we like, um, and then we'll go to town. So we're making this exact dish for the first time today, um, and we're going to taste it in a couple days before we do our first cassoulet dinner and then make tweaks from there. Um, so I've got enough foie here for for us to try one, and then we'll go to town and more when we... Nothing like a close-up of a vein in a foie gras.
1: <laughs> really so how many livers is that? This is one right here that's one yeah how's the thing
2: walk around once it's carnal? let's like not that? think about it too much no <laughs> i mean you know they have these are uh have a week you know they have a towards the end there they definitely are i'm sure having trouble but you know one of the things that we always think about with foie gras, with foie gras um ducks is you know we do want to make sure that we're responsibly sourcing. Um, Certainly, we're conscious of animals, and we are, uh, you know, it's something that we actually are always talking about around here is how the animals we're eating are being raised. Um, But, you know, if you compare a foie gras uh, duck to a factory farm chicken, for example, you know, the foie gras duck is most likely having a much better life experience, Um, and obviously, you know, not to diminish what's happening towards the end with their... With the gorging and the, um, you know, as they enlarge the liver, but um, I think that a lot of the farmers that are doing foie gras ducks, especially doing it traditionally um, and responsibly and thoughtfully, are doing it in a way that is so far superior to what the average American eats in factory farm meats that people who readily go to McDonald's but won't eat foie gras, to me, are not fully aware of the meat they're eating at McDonald's. You know what I mean? The factory-farmed uh, cow is most certainly having a worse life than the foie gras duck from LaBelle Farm, is my point. But, uh, you know, I think it's important to be conscious and then obviously to respect as much as you can the food that you're serving and preparing. So, um, something that we take pretty seriously around here. So, what
3: interests you in casting? I don't
1: know. It's something I've tried to make before. <laughs> and... Maybe not quite have the patience for... uh...
3: It is, you know, it is, um, it does, it requires, I think, less patience and more time, really. I mean, if you have time to to devote to all the process of making it, um, it actually isn't all that hard, Uh, it's just labor-intensive, um, and just, and labor-intensive in a way that's not challenging. I mean, cutting up bacon is not a hard thing to do, cutting vegetables, soaking beans, poaching sausages none of these things are very challenging like kitchen tasks but you know especially with us we're making so much of it I mean it'll take me probably four hours to pick all that duck home feet it's not hard to do it's just time consuming and I think that's probably the labor aspect of cassoulet is why so many people probably don't want to take it on um, and interesting enough cassoulet in its origin is was was you know People using up ingredients that they already had. I mean, like they already had duck comfy made in these villages in France. You know, they already had their sausages, they already had beans, and they would just put it all together because it was like all the leftovers. For us, we're actually like not we're starting from from scratch. Cassoulet is a very it's a very like, it's a peasant dish really, and it really simply means casserole. So and then it doesn't really have to be any. Um, I'm sorry, do You want to finish this? <laughs> yeah. um, have to be sort of, there are a lot of people, especially in France, that will tell you this is what cassoulet is, or this is what needs to be in Castellet, um, but it just sort of depends on where you're from and who you're talking to, so when we make cassoulet, we make it with what we can get from here, and I think that's probably the truest we can do to the French way of it, is just using what we have in the region that we're from. And here, you know, we have smoked, we have access to a lot of different local meats, we use a lot of smoked um, we use smoked um, bacon sausage and and smoked bacon because that's what we get here, and that's what the bacon actually isn't traditionally found in most cassoulets. But we're from the Midwest, we like bacon, <laughs> put bacon in our cassoulet.
2: We have a couple things that are always consistent, like our Fabricioise sausage on leal is always from Fabricioise in California. It's a cured garlic sausage. It's like a signature thing for us. The lamb this year is from Slagle, which is delicious. I mean, just beautiful legs of lamb, um, so we get whole legs in, and then we butcher them and uh, take the meat, um, cut the meat into cubes, um, and that goes into the casserole. so okay. that's the lamb sausage, we have big pork bacon sausage this year, we actually used that last year, um, which I just love, and it's made here in Chicago, um, and it's uh, got great smoke, we used the hickory, um, I think it's hickory and applewood smoke, I can't remember exactly the woods, um, but... It's delicious, it's got a nice sweetness and smokiness, the bacon in it, so that's delicious. Um, The duck legs are from Maple Leaf um, Farm, and then uh, what else is in there this year? The ham hocks are from Slagle Farm. Sorry, my brain is trying to catch up with me in here. What else is in the castle? We have the the bacon is from Newski this year. Um, The bent this year is definitely smokiness. so Mnuski bacon is incredibly smoky. For the cassoulet, when we bake it, uh, you know, it gets layered with the beans, um, all the meats, um, and we pour it over this beautiful smoky bean stock. Um, then we pack it with duck fat breadcrumbs on top, um, bake that for hours during the day um, when we're serving it, and break that crust over and over again while putting more duck fatty breadcrumbs on top. Uh, the other big trick to our cassoulet is we uh, put all of the duck gelée. Um So when you make duck confit, you obviously get your duck fat, you get your duck meat um, that's confit, but underneath is this beautiful duck jelly that is, you know, the juices of the duck that's jellified, and that goes into our cassoulet. And then a uh, thing that we, we've we done a lot of research on this, but uh, over the years and we've taken cassoulet tips from different great chefs, but Joël Robuchon's cassoulet, he adds... Um, Tomatoes that he cooks uh, in duck fat uh, with some onions and garlic. So we actually started doing that a few years ago. So we saute, make almost a tomato sauce with duck fat and onions and garlic, and mix that in. Uh, We like to say that our cassoulet is, you know, the cassoulet. Every in France, I think there's cassoulets for different regions, and different families have different meats that they put in. We we put in the Chicago cassoulet bits. Did you say that? Well, I just said we like to say that. we like to put in the uh, the Chicago things that we can find, the things in our region that we love, um, go into our castle. And I had a guy from France and castle, from Paris with a castle dinner once who said it's not castle if you put bacon in it. He said you'd only put pork belly. It's unsmoked, and I mean, that's great, and that's awesome, and I'm sure that castle is great, but we, again, I, I love smoke, and, and we just, we're kind of going at it with our own sensibilities, so... While still kind of staying true to tradition, to but kind of adding yeah. our own sensibility to it. Okay.
3: So, not that
2: Castle Needed any ones. updating by yeah. the yeah. chefs of Sunday Dinner Club. Yeah.
1: If you're interested in attending a Sunday Dinner Club event, you can find out more at sundaydinnerclub.com and by emailing them at club at sundaydinnerclub.com. If you want to see what all this looked like, I did two posts with a lot of photos at the reader. You can find the link for them and other stuff in this episode in the show post at Skyfullerbacon.com. You know... One thing that Josh and I talked about that I didn't even remember till I was reviewing the recording for the reader posts was the big controversy of that week, which was that someone took their baby to Alinea and Grant Akats tweeted about it and a bunch of people went bonkers about whether babies should be allowed or banished and whether chefs should tweet it and whether it really happened and so on and on. Frankly, I found it hard to actually care about the central issue. But all that led to a pretty interesting few minutes of conversation with Josh about the restaurateur's viewpoint on eating with babies and being an ex-baby and so on. It just didn't have anything to do with A. So here, sort of like the deleted scene on the DVD, is that conversation.
2: Sunday Dinner Club is not generally not a place where people bring kids. Um, but we've had it happen. We, had a, we have this really awesome uh, friend that showed up once with her newborn, uh, she's German and, uh, you know, generally we don't have babies at dinner club. Most nights because we have any sort of policy because people just don't do it. But she walked in with her, you know, few-week-old baby and sat it down and it slept the whole time. And it was like actually something that I thought was pretty cool, um, that someone was sort of out enjoying this awesome dinner and, uh, you know, it was... Not afraid to necessarily bring their kid, and I mean the kid wasn't screaming. And if it cried, I'm sure she would have taken care of it. But um, you know, I, sometimes I actually, you know, La Boca restaurant just closed, and I, my wife and I love going there. I love to go there when they were open. We actually had our first date there, and we um, a lot of times late at night. I mean, it attracts a, you know local clientele from Lincoln Square, but there's always for some reason um, definitely people, probably Italians who are live in the area that were going there for dinner for whatever reason and I remember always being struck how late at night there'd be Italian families at La Boca with their three and four year old kids who were just used to being out places you know what I mean they weren't uh, you know I think my dad always did that with me where he he took me places you know and didn't uh, say we're leaving the kid behind and if I got out of hand I'm sure that he dealt with me And you know he made sure that I didn't distract people or whatever but To just instinctively be hostile to kids in the dining environment, I think, perpetuates a world where people don't necessarily know how to act. Right. I don't have such a problem. I don't know. Maybe I'm the unusual person that doesn't see. I just don't really. And I don't have a kid, so I'm. who the hell knows? But crying babies, I'm sure they're annoying, but it's not something I really think about very often. Yeah. You know what I mean?
1: Well, and the other thing, too, is, I mean every parent has to judge how to calm a baby, and yep. laying down the law is usually the worst way.
2: Oh my god, I'm Sure, it's nothing. sure. Well, that's the worst way to do anything with anybody. Yeah. We learn that every day, even here. I mean, we're in an environment where everyone's cooking in this sort of high pressure, and you know, Christine and I do not do a lot of laying down of the law. Um, it generally doesn't work. Um, never worked on me when I worked for other people. You know, my horror stories of chefs are I worked for the ones that prided themselves in how much they could scare their staff, and that was not something I ever wanted to to do. I remember one chef whose basically entire career, as far as I can see, was spent standing in the corner screaming. You know, leaning against the wall and just screaming, and that was. And I remember, you know, just sort of humiliating, humiliating whoever was standing around and belittling. You know, I remember we had this, you know, eight and a half month pregnant pastry chef at a restaurant I worked at, and he just, you know, she wanted, she needed to take a minute, take a minute break, for God's sake. He just like laid into her about you know, stepping away from the line. Just, I remember it was one of those aha moments where I thought to myself, that's not how I want to ever run a business. And it was the sort of thing where what's, what's, we're actually alive like here, you know what I mean? Like what's, what's the point of doing these things, of cooking, if it's such an angry place, you know? I mean, the reason why I cook is because I love to make food and I love to serve it to people. And, when you, and the people that you are working for you, and that's something that we want everyone who works for us to feel as well, is that it's a labor of love. As much as it's stressful and hard, um, You know, right now we're making awesome food and it's fun. We're doing it together.
1: And from all that meat, we go to veggies. Did you know that Chicago was once the vegetarian capital of America? Neither did I till I read The Vegetarian Crusade by Adam Sprinson, who's a digital historian at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Before the Civil War, vegetarianism was a moral crusade like temperance or abolition. But after the war, it moved to Chicago and became an industry. I asked Sprinson how that happened at the same time that we were hog butcher to the world.
4: It is a remarkable uh, kind of development, given that Chicago is the center of the meat industry by the 1890s, that uh, at that very same time, Chicago becomes the sort of fulcrum for vegetarian movement in the United States. A lot of it is driven by the Columbian Exposition and the World's Fair, uh, which stands as a sort of centralized moment for the vegetarian movement. They're really on the world stage for the first time. The fair itself, its vegetarian component is a... um, Worldwide kind of organization, the Fe- vegetarian Federal Union, which is utilizing uh, sorry uniting vegetarians from not just the United States but also Europe and even places uh, like India so you have Hindus who are part of uh, part of the vegetarian federal union that are uh, speaking at this at this event so vegetarians at the Colombian Exposition are there for two reasons: one. They hold their own meeting, their own vegetarian congress, which is at the Art Institute, uh, over three days, and this is sort of a, maybe a kind of of, rah-rah type of event that you would expect, where people are giving speeches, talking about all the benefits of vegetarianism, and remarkably, Reflecting sort of the ethos of vegetarians at the time, it focuses on ideas of personal success that vegetarianism is a way to advance socially economically, also even a way to sort of beautify oneself that it's a what one speaker called a becoming diet, something that was kind of socially acceptable in um, in sort of well run circles. The momentum from the from the exposition essentially leads Chicago, and part of it is just because the event itself took place in Chicago, uh, starts sort of this tidal wave of vegetarian organizations and establishments popping up within the city. So that while the fair is going on, the first fully vegetarian um, establishment opens up in Chicago um, near the fairgrounds. And that's housing people during the fair, because there's this idea that there are going to be vegetarians from throughout the world coming to Chicago, and they need a place to stay, and they need a place that they know that they can get uh, a a meal and one that they can trust at. And that's um, located actually at uh, 63rd Street in in Englewood. But then after that, all these other restaurants and organizations start popping up, especially within sort of uh, heavily trafficked business areas. So the first vegetarian restaurant, which was called the Pure Food Lunchroom, opened up in 1900. That's the first vegetarian restaurant in Chicago, Um, and that's in the loop uh, at 176 East Madison. You have other restaurants that open up, uh, one that was called the Ionia Vegetarian Restaurant, which actually had two locations, one which was at 187 Dearborn, uh, and then another one that was on Clark Street in the loop. And most of these restaurants are in these kind of high traffic business areas, as well as areas that were kind of connected to the city's elite. So you also have restaurants popping up in the Gold Coast and even in areas like Uptown, which um, at the time was sort of the vacation spot for, for Chicago's economic elite.
1: Do you have any idea what the food was like? Because I feel like now people, anyone trying to sell vegetarianism would would have to kind of I don't know, express kind of a a bit of a Sybaritic view, you know, all the, you know, there's nothing like the fresh carrots out of the ground, the braised (laughs) kale, you know, and there's none of that back then, it doesn't seem.
4: Um, Unfortunately for these specific restaurants I haven't been able to find any surviving menus, so I don't know specifically what was being served uh, at the at the Chicago locations, but I do have a sense of the the food sort of in general that's being promoted to vegetarians during the time period so I think that we can assume that similar things are being served uh, at these restaurants. This is based on cookbooks of the time period as well as uh, sort of advertising. This is the same t- period of time where uh, sort of fake meats are becoming really popular um, originally invented by J.H. Kellogg at his Battle Creek Sanitarium Kellogg of course is, is a, become a somewhat cartoonish uh, figure within our popular consciousness thanks to um, T.C. Boyle's book, uh, but certainly more so because of the movie version of that with uh, Anthony Hopkins playing a kind of uh, exaggerated version of, of Kellogg. Uh, but Kellogg is an important, uh, remains an important figure for vegetarians during this time period. He invents a series of fake meats, the most popular of which was known as Protos, uh, that in many ways are similar to the types of fake meats that we would find at, um, either in the grocery store or at vegetarian restaurants. today. Think of the types of things that they serve at the Chicago Diner. Um, These were fake meats made out of either uh, soy proteins, nuts, um, and other types of materials that were crafted with the idea that they were supposed to taste, smell, and feel like meat. And this is a big change. Vegetarians, up until this time period, are eating mostly very kind of plain meals, boiled potatoes, boiled cabbages, things like that, which isn't necessarily down upon boiled potatoes and boiled cabbages. Uh, But as part of vegetarianism's new shift to look outward from the movement, the movement itself is promoting these fake meats as a way to gain sort of broader appeal so that they are serving in these restaurants meals that are supposed to taste like a steak or a hamburger and things like that whether or not they did is is certainly (laughs) difficult to to gauge but at the very least people believe that they did and that that in and of itself is, is pretty uh pretty remarkable
1: essentially you've taken something that started out natural go grow yourself a cabbage and boil some cabbage and industrialized it at that point uh-huh. you're making a product now so and that seems a very right. chicago contribution to the movement <laughs> it,
4: it absolutely is you know it's the it's the notion not just that uh you know one not only is it a break because the vegetarians are seeing benefits to sort of the gustatory qualities of meat um but but what they're saying is that you can actually improve upon those qualities that they see as being beneficial so that the fake meats are actually more effective in what they say is blood building which in in essence is is protein. That they see the fake meats as being more effective as, as a protein source, uh, that they see it as pr- creating better energy within individuals. So it's the idea that you can kind of industrialize the process of making these fake meats in order to um, kind of use scientific principles uh, to even improve upon something which in a way is natural, although they certainly didn't see it as natural, but something as natural as, you know, as as a steak. Uh, so there's, they're certainly responding to also the state of uh, meat production during the time period, which in Chicago is um, causing certainly angst amongst the population in terms of uh, its environmental implications. So people are smelling the effects of the stockyards throughout the city. There's, of course, the uh, labor implications for the people that are working within the, within the back of the yards. Um, and vegetarians are very aware of that and kind of marketing their fake meats as an anecdote uh, to these problems that meat, that the meat industry is causing.
1: Now, one of the most interesting things in the book that I had no idea about was that one of Chicago's great sports figures, Amos Alonzo Stagg, was a vegetarian and he tried to make the Chicago Maroons University of Chicago team an entirely vegetarian football team.
4: Yeah, so there's this really interesting um, story of the uh, 1906 University of Chicago football team uh, training under Stagg's direction on a on a pure vegetarian diet. Stagg is, is beyond being well known for his um, know, football kind of, um, ingenuity. He's inventing the huddle and, you know, even numbers on uniforms, things like that. Uh, after practicing vegetarianism himself and seeing sort of great results for his own physical vigor and strength, he decides to, uh, Place that burden it's as says I have feeling many of his players thought uh, onto his team he 's already banning things like smoking and drinking and swearing, so in a way it 's kind of the next logical step uh, on one hand, uh, we can assume that the, that there was resistance we also don 't know necessarily what the players are doing on their own time, right. but in theory in theory, while they 're under stag's eye they're not there 's no meat allowed they 're not eating any of it um, and the team becomes well known for this so in a way it 's not necessarily uh, important whether or not they were actually training on a vegetarian diet in reality. Uh, But just the fact that they take on this identity of vegetarians and uh, become well-known and sort of Promoted precisely for that reason, especially in the Chicago Tribune, which is uh, reporting on their season and repeatedly just refers to the team as the vegetarians and uh, talks about the ways that a vegetable diet actually makes them not only quicker and sort of smarter players, uh, but less brutal players. This is a time period where college football and f- football in general is being criticized because of its number of injuries and its violence, and not a, not a theme that we're familiar with anymore at all. No, no, no. Um,
3: <laughs>
4: but uh, so the diet's promoted as a way of, of creating kind of morally industrious players who aren't going to go out there to name and injure, but they're going to go out there and win and rely on their cunning rather than on their brute strength. And apparently it works because they do win their division title that year.
1: Makes you wonder if any of the cheers survived from from the fighting vegetarians. There is uh, one
4: phenomenal uh, cheer from the fighting vegetarians that, um, let me find that very quickly, sorry about that, uh, that was promoted actually in the Chicago Tribune, uh, that not only sort of summarized the vegetarianism of his team, but um, kind of, also looks at the, the ways in which the fans uh, were sort of rallying behind this cause. So there was one, one particularly interesting chant uh, that went like this. Sweet potatoes, rutabagas, sauerkraut squash. Run your legs off, Captain Detray. This is Leo Detray, who was uh, the starting halfback. Uh, sure, our milk-fed men, by gosh, will lick them bad today. Not exactly the most uh, <laughs> easily, <laughs> easily uh, chanted uh, cheer, but uh, apparently one that had some effect nonetheless.
1: The Vegetarian Crusade by Adam Sprinson is published by University of North Carolina Press. Now. I didn't build the Sky Full of Bacon brand by eating vegetables. But I think that makes me a great guy to get vegetarian recommendations from, because obviously I'm not going to settle for a Saitan LT and pretend it's bacon. I'll happily eat vegetarian from any cuisine where they make robust, full-flavored things and you don't even notice that they forgot to put a cow in them. Which is a lot of ethnic cuisines, you know, maybe not South American or Eastern European, but, for instance, I love the Mapo tofu at Lao Tse Chuan, a spicy volcanic bowl of jiggly tofu and hot sauce. Just don't order it the way they do on LTH forums sometimes, where they get a bunch of pork dumped on top of it. Italian restaurants are good for vegetarian dishes. A lot of times on the menu they'll have greens like broccoli rabe that they'll cook up with pasta or just serve by themselves. And maybe most of all, I love Indian vegetarian food. I love the enormous dosas, crispy pancakes a yard long, and the bindi, okra, at Udipi Palace on Devon. Or across the street at Annapurna, choli batura, chickpea stew. It's very spicy. You eat it with uh, with the bread and just kind of scoop it up. I'm less wild about Uroswati down the street, although they still have a uh, best-of thing from the reader that I wrote about them uh, tacked up on the outside. But since then, I've had some meals that just weren't that exciting there, and it's kind of fallen off my list. Anyway, those are a few ideas. I'll have links for all of them at skyfullofbacon.com. Islands in Greektown is one of the busiest restaurants in Chicago, dishing up Greek classics like moussaka and freshly grilled fish to thousands of visitors a week. I was sent on assignment by Ware Chicago to interview Gus Cushell, the co-owner and manager, about his food. But the conversation we had covered much more than just food and business. It was about life, the Mediterranean way of living, which he's been doing since coming to America from Greece as a teenager.
5: When it was done, I was really glad we'd met. My name is Costa, Gas in America, Koushel. The Greek name is Okay, It's hard to pronounce. (laughs) We were after the Second World War, you know what I mean? There was, the whole village was destroyed from Germans. And uh, we started building again with the aid of this country. You know, it's helped us a lot. And uh, we start with a little tavern. My father, actually, the tavern in the village now is the fourth generation. My grandfather built the house and the tavern, 1890. And then my father took over, he was there for 90 years. And uh, when I was born and raised in the village, I started working in the tavern since I was six, seven years old, serving little wine, you know, some sardines, uh, you know, things like tapas, and uh, and then we expanded, you know, we make it like a general store, we start making cheeses, we start have a butcher shop, you know, the whole thing in the village, and then I immigrated to America when I was seventy years old, and when I came here. I started as a busboy, a lot of the finest restaurants here in Chicago. So what were some of the restaurants that you worked at when you first started? First of all, I worked at the Drake Hotel, which was still one of the most, you know, prestige hotels in Chicago. And then I worked at the most famous restaurant, if. Some people, older people here in Chicago remember the name of Imperial House, okay? It was the finest restaurant in America, not only in Chicago. But unfortunately, when the old man passed away, you know, goes down the drain, okay? Then I worked at um, uh, Mr. Kelly's, Uh, I work at. uh, Which is where
1: Gibson's is now, right? Yes.
5: No, no. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, Gibson, on on Roy Street. And I worked for about 15 years, uh, all the positions, busboy, waiter, captain. And then four of us, my partners and I, we bought the old Greek island, which was located about a, a block away from here, on Jackson. This is my story mm-hmm. in a restaurant, but all my, you know, for almost 70 years, you know, I've been in a restaurant. I've been with the public, okay? Yes. And uh, I was, I love people and uh, I cannot, you know, a lot of people ask me now, How, when, when are you going to retire? You know, you work hard, you know, do this. I don't think I will ever go, go retire because I don't know anything else to do, you know what I mean? I cannot stay home. You know, I can't. And uh, I'm very happy because I come here for two, three hours during the day and I see customers that will grow up together, okay, 43 years customers. And then by one o'clock I leave and go west, you know, go to Lombard. And stay there to three hours till I'm ready to go see my grandchildren, okay? That's it. Okay. What happens to me 25 years ago that I, I got sick, you know, heart problems, okay? And, uh, and I left this country and I went to Greece and uh, of course my doctor prescribed me the statins, you know, the new you know for a car and uh, I went there and I never took anything okay for six months and I came back after six months and he told me that you have to watch your diet you know I mean, avoid uh, saturate fat you know things like that and when I came back I want to see him get the blood test and and then the next day he called me in the morning. Here, say, Gus, don't take that pills, and and you have to tell me you come to see me or I come because it was my customer too. I wanted to to tell me what you done. You know what I mean? It's a miracle. Your cholesterol it's 160 without taking any medicine. Okay, I say, how? What was your your diet? You know, and I say, this is the Mediterranean diet that we've been doing here and olive oil, I was eating 80% olive oil, okay, 80%, okay, greens, beans, you know what I mean, little starch, homemade starch, okay, and little chicken, that's it, okay, and he said, don't take the medicine, you know, you're perfect, you know what I mean, that's what the doctor told me, and, and I've been doing since then, I started importing my own olive oil, you know, for all these years. And two, we change the cooking here. No butter, you know, very seldom, you know, use just a piece of butter, okay? There is olive oil, you know what I mean? So, I've been doing this for 25 years. And in and, and the beginning, I had a hard time with my customers because when you eliminate butter, you eliminate fat, you know, and salt. I mean, they used to use the MSG, that you know it's the worst okay you know the taste was not you know like it used to okay till they digest you know explain to them you know what i mean this is the mediterranean diet you know we all, you know sooner or later we have to follow you know because it's very good for your health that's what i've been doing the mediterranean diet it's a lot of fish you know we know and thick or i mean fat fish okay. like salmon sardine it's good maybe they have a little fat but that fat it's the best okay that's omega-3 oil okay and what I'm doing now and I put I find a ways to do it I buy fish from uh, direct from Greece and I keep the price in you know in in in, in you know very in know uh, good. I mean, I don't pay high prices. And that, I pass this to my customers. I have a whole fish and sell them for 60 You know what I mean? Nobody can, you know, compete, you know, with my prices. And it's fresh. Two things. You know, maybe I don't make this much that other restaurants do as a profit. But it's, it's move. You know what I mean? It's moving. And, and because I have a very reasonable prices, you know. Every two days, you know, I buy fish. Okay, this happens this, yesterday. They were not very busy. We sold always 50 old fish here. Okay, I, I love know. what I'm doing. Okay, and if you love something, uh, something, you know, you will try to maintain. I mean, to keep, you know, to keep them best. You know, best as possible. Okay, that's for me. And because I read and I work in better places, and I see, watch the chefs, I had a good relation with every kitchen. You know what I mean? Because I was a likeable guy, and they showed me, if I ask, say, what are you using this? I mean, how? I don't, I never been behind the kitchen, okay? But I can tell if something is good or bad. Okay, I can tell. My village it used to be to used to have about two thousand people the population. Been destroyed hundred percent we rebuilt. And uh, and it's up in the mountains. It's about three thousand feet above sea level, okay? The summer is an ideal place. You can find anything there. You have tavern coffee cup. Beautiful, a lot of people visit and me, we get together with the people that we left when we were kids, I mean young kids, you know, guys, and we want to, we came to this country, some they live in North Carolina, some in New York, some in Canada, some in Australia, and we get together, you know, like a reunion. So we have our own group, okay? we play in little cards. I have the wine always in the ice box, you know what I mean? So we have a little mezze and uh, that's it. So I don't want to go nowhere, okay? Nowhere. Only there. They call me, come on, you got to buy this sea. one where I import the olive olive oil, uh, wine, you know. I might go for a few hours and then I want to go back to the village. That's what I'm doing. Good to see you. I see you too. Thank you. We have a customer's three generation. When you start there, you know, I, I can't remember all of them. I can't recognize the faces, but I can't remember names, okay? So, Kao, you used to bring, the, you know, this is my grandchildren, you know, grandson. You know, when I remember mm-hmm. when started eating little soup, you know, 40 years ago. He's bring his family. You know what I mean? That's the way, you know, a lot of. Powers, you know develop people and I remember that they say well the steam both restaurants say do you remember the old place I pretend that I remember sometimes you know because I can't remember you know everything you know what I mean it's impossible so so that's what happens here in end I'm a very grateful person. You know what I mean? I'm happy what I'm doing. You know what I mean? What I'm making. I don't want to cut throat. You know what I mean? I'm very visible. Maybe because I brought up that way. Maybe I was. I was. I remember myself during the war, and I know how difficult situations. Even now in America, we're not. You know, things. You know, it's a lot of people they have problems. You know, they struggle. You know what I mean? Yeah, they want to. Uh, they want to celebrate their birthday, their Christians, their name day, whatever, and then I can afford all of them, you know, to pay big money, you know what I mean? So they go to the family restaurant because it's more reasonable, you know? Yeah, it took me my. <laughs> The other day, my daughter's birthday, and they took me to the restaurant. I don't want to mention name, and it cost us 120 dollars per person. I mean, how many people they be able, you know? And between me and you, uh, maybe I won't go again. You know what I mean? I I, I don't want to go. You know what I mean? And I'm still thinking to myself, say what? how good, you know, the deal that we give them to our customers. You know what I mean? They come here, they have the wine, they have variety of the Greek food, and it costs you more than 25 dollars. You know what I mean? And I, I'm happy. You know, what I, mean? I just want to see people fill up the door.
1: Thank you again for choosing Airwaves Full of Bacon. I know you have a choice of podcasts now and appreciate you listening to this one. Thanks to Christine Sikowski and Josh Culp and everyone at Sunday Dinner Club. Thanks to Adam Sprintson and Auguste Cushell, Valerie Maloney of Where Chicago and Barbecue. Please subscribe at iTunes. The links for that and everything else are at SkyFullOfBacon.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod with some help from Rossini this time. I'll be back in a few weeks. This is Episode 8.